Welcome to Episode 4 of Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about landmark cases in America. If you've been following along, you know that this case is about Brian Kuhn, a young St. Louis, Missouri man with back pain who became addicted to prescription opioid pain meds prescribed to him legally by his physician, Dr. Walden. Not just a few pills, thousands of opioid pills over four and a half years. Plaintiff attorneys Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon and their legal team at the Simon Law Firm have been working for over three years to prepare for Monday, June 20th, 2016, the first day of trial. They know the facts of this case by heart, but communicating those facts to the jury was a challenge. Each important piece of information had to be selected, labeled as exhibits, and submitted to the court before they could be used in trial. In trial, you had some great visual aids. What'd you do to communicate what you needed to communicate clearly to the jury? A picture's worth a thousand words. I mean, the first thing that had to be done was, was take all the scripts from the pharmacy records and put them in one chart that you could go through. It makes it easier to talk to witnesses about it, and you can scroll through it, and the jury can see how they get bigger and bigger and bigger. But then you also want individual exhibits. And we took those the numbers we were able to consolidate from that chart that was put together, and we made a bar graph that showed the average daily dose in the first year and how much it went up in the next year, which you see the bar double, and the next year you see it triple from that number, and it, it just, it literally went off the board. And then I think we also created one that showed how many pills on average were being taken per day in the first year, the second year, the third year. And they were just very easy to understand graphs or charts, visuals for the jury to see the story of what happened without having to pour through 12 pages of 25 line charts. Modifying those charts with numbers from the guidelines, I think was really cool. Right. So we had the bar graph showing the average daily dose, which went from 50 in the beginning to to 200 to like 500 to 1,000 to 1,500. And then with the witnesses, when we would establish that the guidelines said 100, we'd take a thick red marker and we'd just go across it at the 100 line and it would show that they were like 15 times past that. And I think that was effective for the jury to, you know, you need simple rules about what this is, what should have been done, and you can see what was done compared to it. And I think they were effective. The inscription on the St. Louis Civil Courts building reads, May truth, honor, and justice forever reign. Justice depended on 12 jurors chosen from the juror pool of about 50 St. Louis residents, randomly selected by computer. The process of selecting trial jurors from this pool is called vor dire. In Latin, vor means true, and dire means to speak. To speak the truth. This is the juror's duty, to speak the truth after hearing all the evidence. But as we learned from the focus groups, people are inclined to see the truth in different ways. In Vordire, attorneys from both sides ask potential jurors general questions related to the case, trying to uncover the preconceived beliefs, prejudices, or biases we all have that could benefit or damage their side if that potential juror was seated. Getting a group of strangers to talk about their deep personal beliefs in a strange courtroom is an art. 
Johnny's father, John Simon, the founder of the Simon Law Firm, handled Vordier at trial. John Simon is listed as one of the best attorneys in America and is a member of a group called the Inner Circle of Advocates, the top 100 plaintiff attorneys in America. He believed in this case and brought years of experience to the table. John Simon began asking carefully prepared questions in Vordier, using insights from the focus groups Tim had conducted. Potential jurors raised their hands in response. Most potential jurors were aware of the opioid epidemic. One man lost his father and three brothers to addiction. Then John brought out the tough facts. The client he was fighting for was an addict, but he claimed he wasn't responsible for his addiction and wanted compensation. Was that a problem for anyone? Using a bad fact like that, my client's an addict, anyone have a problem, even just a little bit awarding money to them, uh, you know, people, I'd, I'd be raising my hand. I mean, people would have a big problem with that. We knew the opioid epidemic was raging. We knew people were gonna know that, right? It was evident from the, the jurors, without us using the word opioid epidemic, you asked, has anyone been prescribed or know someone been prescribed opioids? I mean, everybody raises their hand, right? I mean, And started talking about how this seems like this is a bigger problem than just one case should be right, right. before we even were talking about it. You didn't use the word. But it right? was, are people going to be moved or care about this story? More than one person said paying large damages might create obstacles for doctors and limit their ability to provide care. Some thought an addict only deserved money for treatment, not for any pain and suffering he might have endured. Others didn't want to give any money to anyone for anything. The defense wanted those people on the jury. Brian's team did not. There was a simple key question from the focus groups that Tim and Johnny learned would likely identify which jurors would be good for the plaintiff and which would not. And that question was, who do you think is more responsible for a patient's health care, the doctor or the patient themselves? The answer to that question gave John a good idea of which jurors he should focus on for the remainder of Vordire to explore their ability to be fair and unbiased. After John questioned the jury pool, it was the defense team's turn to question them. And they did a very insightful thing. Before they asked potential jurors a single question, they introduced Dr. Walden. You've probably painted a picture in your mind of this physician. I had too. And he certainly wasn't what I had imagined. Dr. Henry Walden is a distinguished older gentleman with receding white hair and wire-rimmed glasses. He looks like a nice, happy grandpa. I realized how easy it must have been for Brian to trust this man, for anyone to trust this man. Now his legal team is introducing this friendly-looking doctor to potential jurors in Vordire, making a personal connection. The defense attorney asked potential jurors similar questions. Do doctors work hard to do the best they can for their patients? Has anyone had a bad outcome with their own physician that might make them question this physician unfairly? After Vordire questioning, the potential jurors are taken to another room, and the attorneys vote to retain or dismiss each potential juror based on whether that person can give a fair and impartial judgment in the case, as indicated by their responses. 
both sides know the deep-seated values of these 12 citizens will influence the final result of the trial. After the selection process, 12 jurors and two alternates were sworn in. Game on. In a civil case like this one, the plaintiff, the party initiating the lawsuit, in this case, Brian and Michelle Kuhn, present their case first. The trial begins with opening arguments, a summary of each side's case that tells the jury for the first time what this proceeding's all about. Tim Cronin took a deep breath and began the speech he spent weeks preparing. Tim presented Brian's addiction as one single example of the prescription opioid epidemic that was ravaging our society and asked the jury to become part of the solution. He was less than 400 words into his opening statement when the defense objected to Tim bringing up the opioid epidemic, a key point the plaintiffs wanted to include to explain the environment Dr. Walden practiced in and to empower the jurors to send a big message to the medical profession, not just one physician. I tried to count the objections in this case, and honestly, I could not keep up. There were dozens based on individual lines of testimony or depositions or exhibits, and I won't even go into them all. Both legal teams actively objected to questions and answers throughout the trial, and that's not to obstruct, but to ensure that the strict rules of law are followed to keep the playing field level. Questions cannot be vague, lead the witness to a conclusion, or extend beyond the witness's area of expertise. Witnesses cannot answer outside the scope of the question or discuss matters which the court has excluded from trial. And hundreds of other legal reasons based on precedents set in other cases. Of course, objections are also used to try to keep damaging evidence out. But you have to come up with a substantive legal reason. On this objection, like most in the case, Circuit Court Judge Michael Noble ruled quickly talking about the opioid epidemic would be allowed. Tim gave an overview of Brian's case, describing how Dr. Walden kept prescribing opioid pills until the doses became so big pharmacies wouldn't fill them, and how Brian and Michelle Kuhn claimed they begged for help for Brian's addictions, but Dr. Walden did nothing. Tim clearly outlined the plaintiff's three claims, one, that Dr. Walden was negligent in prescribing and monitoring Brian's opioid prescriptions. Two, that Michelle had lost consortium, or the relationship between a husband and wife. And three, that Dr. Walden had a conscious disregard for safety for Brian, Michelle, and the public by overprescribing and under-monitoring Brian's growing addiction. Conscious disregard for safety is a key phrase that allowed the jury to consider punitive damages, damages which exceed simple compensation and are awarded to punish the defendant. One part is deterrence, to keep it from happening to someone else. The second is to compensate the plaintiff. So there are different goals at play. Obviously, one accomplishes the other. Compensating a plaintiff for a wrong that happened to them or, or you know, damage that they incurred if you compensate them adequately enough, it sends a message to the wrongdoers and uh, people who engage in, in misconduct that if you do that, you're going to be held accountable for it. 
Tim ended his crisp opening statement by saying that Brian and Michelle were in court not just for themselves, but to make sure this didn't happen to anyone else ever again. Then the defense took the floor to paint a completely different picture. Their aim was to keep this trial tightly focused only on Brian and Michelle Kuhn and Dr. Walden, keeping the hospital system and the national epidemic off the jury's radar. They claimed Dr. Walden was a compassionate, caring physician who was trying to help Brian keep his good job at the St. Louis Parks Department by helping him work through his debilitating back pain. Their expert physicians would support Dr. Walden's treatment plan as reasonable and effective. They agreed the opioid doses were high, but Brian had severe pain and developed a very common tolerance to the opioids that created a challenging medical situation Dr. Walden did his best to manage. They would show Dr. Walden did try to wean Brian down on his medication, and most damaging, that Brian was not, and never was, the zombie his wife portrayed, and that he and Michelle just wanted money. Both opening statements were powerful, but now it was time for evidence. The plaintiff's first expert witness, Dr. Paul Jennison, was called to the stand. Dr. Jennison's comments and all witness comments from the trial are recreated here by actors because the trial was not recorded. In trial, the depositions, or depots, are used as the factual basis for questions. Dr. Jennison's testimony and supporting slides created by the legal team reinforced the key points of his deposition, that due to their risk of addiction and death due to respiratory failure if misused, Dr. Walden should not have treated Brian's back pain with opioids and recklessly put Brian at risk. John Simon asked, were opioids appropriate treatment for Brian Kuhn? There are many other narcotic analgesics that are short-acting and should be used before you would get to OxyContin. The risks of this drug are so serious that you would never use it unless the patient's need for it was very serious. There was no assessment of the patient that met the standard of care with respect to using opioid treatments for back pain. These colossal doses of opioids were a deviation from the standard of care that exposed Mr. Kuhn to the risk of addiction and the other complications. And the beautiful thing was it took our expert, Dr. Jennison's testimony about what the standard of care required. And the first five slides would be, here's the standard of care for opioids. Here's what is lowest effective dose possible. You want to start low and go slow. Yeah, and I mean, you need to try every other type of option first. You need to, it's the opioids should be the last, the pain medication of last resort. You need to give the lowest effective dose. You need to, uh, you need to monitor. I mean, he gave seven or eight different things of trying to avoid something like this happen. But instead, Dr. Walden prescribed opioids like Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and Vicodin at the same time plus Ambien, Xanax, and other drugs for Brian, a potentially deadly combination. That's an extremely risky practice that exposes the patient to a risk of death. That's really unacceptably high. These are drugs that in combination can depress respirations or alter the brain's function, ability to think straight, to reason, to remember, to interact with others, to drive safely, 
operate machinery safely. When you see a, this kind of interaction, the doctor has to take that very seriously and not give medication in combination that could be harmful, because to do so is reckless. Reckless was the key word that supported the plaintiff's disregard for safety claim. Medical records show Dr. Walden had Brian Kuhn on almost 40 opioid pills a day in 2012, and most of those pills were prescribed over the phone without an office visit. Only one or two records show a discussion with Brian about the risks involved in his four years of opioid treatment. Here is Dr. Jennison's summary of Brian's care. My opinion is that Dr. Walden prescribed excessive and increasingly excessive doses to the point where I would characterize them as colossal and extraordinary doses. The kind of doses that, to give a patient, exposed him to the very high risk of injury to himself or to other people in the event that he was driving a car or responsible for caring for another person. This is a level at which state licensure board and the drug enforcement agency and the DEA are trying to protect patients from. It's a pattern of prescribing that exposes a patient to a very high risk of dying for backache. The plaintiffs were also suing Dr. Walden's hospital system, and they needed to bring them into the discussion for the jury to consider their involvement. John Simon opened that door by asking Dr. Jennison if opioid patients should be monitored. Absolutely mandatory, because there are safe parameters for prescribing narcotic analgesics. And doctors cannot meet the standard of care and bring it through those limits in overdosing their patients. John then asked if Dr. Walden's hospital system should have monitored the amount of medication prescribed to Brian Kuhn by Dr. Walden with some type of medicine management protocols. Defense objected immediately, saying Dr. Jennison did not bring this up in his depot and that the hospital system should not be implicated, even though they were named in the lawsuit. This objection was raised pre-trial and throughout the proceedings as part of the defense team's strategy to distance Dr. Walden from the hospital system, thereby protecting their big institutional client. Tim Cronin responded to the objection to point out that the issue was brought up in Dr. Jennison's depot. Tim cited several depot references by page and line number. That's standard response for any objection. And he argued the hospital system was referenced in the depot and therefore was admissible. John Simon pointed out that Dr. Walden and the hospital system worked under the same policies, procedures, and regulations, and were therefore one and the same. The objection was overruled, a major victory for Brian. Defense then moved for a mistrial because they said they didn't have an expert to respond to the allegation that the hospital system should have a monitoring system in place. John Simon respectfully pointed out that the defense had Dr. Jennison's depot for months and had every opportunity to get any expert they wanted to respond to this issue. Motion for mistrial was denied. Dr. Jennison testified for Brian well into Wednesday afternoon when the defense began their attempt to discredit him. They wanted the jury to know that Dr. Jennison had made over a million dollars in 20 years of testifying in legal and medical cases, hoping jurors might believe money could influence an expert's testimony. That tactic would come back to hurt them, but they didn't know that yet. The defense then tried to imply that Dr. Jennison had not reviewed Brian's medical record thoroughly. 
Dr. Jennison was asked to read from his own depot. I was asked, and how many hours had you reviewed the case between receiving the file on January 30th and your phone call on January 31st, 2014, where you reached your opinion? My answer was, I don't recall, but it couldn't, it wouldn't have been more than an hour or two. Although this referred to Dr. Jennison's initial review of Brian's case and not his in-depth preparation for depo, it did cast some doubt and confusion upon the thoroughness of his opinion. Defense then pushed Dr. Jennison for over 30 minutes about various state and federal medical guidelines until he agreed that guidelines on opioid prescribing were voluntary and that no textbook taught that there was a ceiling for opioid dosing. This was a major victory for the defense because as we noted earlier, it would be difficult for the jury to find that Dr. Walden had violated the standard of care if there was no standard of care. And Dr. Jennison was the only expert who could make this claim. As they wrapped up their cross-examination, the defense hoped they had poked enough holes in Dr. Jennison's credibility. Over the course of the following days, additional witnesses were called, including an expert psychologist to provide an opinion on Brian's opioid addiction. But the trickiest and most important witnesses were Brian and Michelle Kuhn themselves. Years of waiting had built to this moment when the Kuhns could finally tell their story in their own words. Unlike expert witnesses who'd been on the stand many times, Brian and Michelle were anxious. The most intimate details of their lives were about to become public record. Tim had to ask just the right questions to allow them to tell their story. I really thought it was going to be the most difficult part is to really pull the story out of them, to really, really put them on and make it compelling. They didn't want people to feel bad for them. They wanted people to understand what they had gone through. What a tough, brave thing for these people to do is what I was thinking. They're putting their lives on the line, their lives and reputations and, you know, coming out and risking it all to, you know, do something bigger than themselves while at the same time admitting really personal things about the relationship. Michelle Kuhn nervously stepped up to the stand. Testifying would be especially difficult for her because she was going to say things publicly that were hard for Brian to hear. Tim asked Michelle to talk about Brian's escalating doses, recalling the time that she called Dr. Walden to tell him that a pharmacy wouldn't fill Brian's massive prescriptions and that Dr. Walden was telling her to pick up the drugs from his office instead. Michelle claimed she told nurses at Dr. Walden's office that Brian was going through his drugs too fast and she had to hide them. But the scripts kept coming. And Michelle kept picking them up for Brian because she didn't know what else to do. I thought the weakest part of our case and the riskiest part of our case was while telling that story, if I were the other side, and they did this, pointing out, okay, but every time I see here in the records where you're getting a script, you or your wife is calling and asking for more pills. And now here you are asking for money for the pills that you requested and you got. I mean, every single time they're calling and saying, he needs more pills, he needs more pills. Well, you got him. Yeah. And now you want money for it? That was the most difficult part of the case that we just had to deal with. You couldn't do away with it. And the answer was, 
his wife didn't know what to do. I mean, he was, had turned into a train wreck and it was just dealing with the emergency that was at hand and Brian couldn't see the problem. He thought, I need the pills because he had addiction brain. I mean, your brain will convince you of anything to justify, I, I need to have these drugs. Tim asked, Michelle, if you had concerns, why would you call for Brian's refills or increases or go pick up the prescriptions for him? Because not only did I have a sick husband at home, but by the time he'd be out of his medicine, he'd be going through withdrawals. I also had a little girl at home who I was trying to protect. And when he had his medicine, he was one man. But without it, I thought I was doing what I needed to do to keep my home as safe as possible. Tim asked Michelle to tell the jury about the horror she witnessed at home. Brian falling asleep while driving the family home and smoking on the front porch, and the attempted suicide with the loaded gun. And the terrifying day she took him to rehab by herself as she tried to save his life. A rehab facility recommended not by Dr. Walden, but by a grocery store pharmacist. Brian was in a lot of pain. At that moment, he was a person I did not recognize at all. Some of the sounds that he was making from the pain are sounds I wouldn't want anybody to hear. He was so frustrated by the time we got there. I can't tell you how many times he punched the inside of the car door. Then, one carefully crafted question opened the floodgate of emotion. I asked Michelle, with Brian sitting in the room, Michelle is the man you fell in love with and married sitting in this courtroom today. The answer was no. The current Brian was in the courtroom. That's not the man she fell in love with and married. And I I think people understood that when she explained like I lost my soulmate he's gone forever and man I'm getting chills listening to it I'm, I'm really like just the thought of that because you know you think about is the person you know who is an addict or addicted to something are they that person when they're on those drugs are they no you, you tell yourself no they're not right that's not them right that's not them but you know what it wasn't him And four years of their life, formative years when they have children, gone, decimated. Brian didn't know that question was coming or how Michelle completely lost it. But Brian, sitting in the back, lost it even more than she did. Because he finally understood what he, like, what this had done to his wife. He finally understood it. In terms that she'd been unable to express to him. Because she didn't want to hurt him. But he finally understood. And the jury, seeing both of them having that extremely emotionally powerful moment where they're realizing it, I think, helped them understand the the significance of it. The defense began their cross-examination of Michelle. Every good attorney knows jurors don't like it if you come down too hard on a victim, especially after an emotional moment like this. So the questions were careful and polite. Michelle answered each question cautiously. The defense outlined some of the key facts. Brian was the sole income for the family after you had your baby, correct? Yes. You said you would check on Brian every night to see if he was still breathing. Did you ever notice that he had difficulty breathing or that he'd stopped breathing? Not that I know of, sir. The night he fell asleep at the wheel, there was no accident, no police report, no damage, correct? Correct. Michelle admitted she did call in and ask for more medications, 
Defense then brought up Michelle's statement in depot that Brian was better when he was on his meds. As the defense put it, despite being concerned about how your husband was taking the medication, you preferred how he was with the medications to how he was when he didn't have them. True? I wouldn't put it in those words, sir, but I did call. Then the defense pushed back on Michelle telling Dr. Walden that the pharmacy refused to fill his massive prescriptions. The defense said, but there's no record of your call, is there? Do you have any documentation of the pharmacy refusing to fill a prescription? No, but they called me personally and called Dr. Walden. What about the incident where Brian put a gun in his mouth? Did you actually see that? No, sir. I'm not sure when it actually happened. And then, a painful question meant to imply that Brian is responsible. Has your husband at any point admitted that he bears any responsibility for the circumstances that led him to seek rehab treatment? He has apologized to me so many times for allowing this to take over our lives. After the defense questions, the plaintiff is allowed to redirect. That means ask more questions of the witness to clarify points that might have been brought up by the defense in cross-examination. Tim showed Dr. Walden's records from July 6, 2012, which documented the pharmacist's call refusing to fill the prescriptions. So that was cleared up for the jury. Then Tim closed on an emotional appeal. He showed pictures of Brian and Michelle early in their marriage, and then after their daughter was born, and toward the end of the four years of opioids, sometime around 2012. We can't see the pictures, but we can tell by Tim's question that Brian didn't look good. He asked, did Brian look like that a lot? Yes. I had to remove her from his arms right after that picture was taken. Jurors appeared to be moved by Michelle's emotional testimony. On Thursday, June 23rd, Brian Kuhn took the stand. Brian was now 44 years old, a recovering opioid addict who had endured withdrawal, rehab, and four back and neck surgeries after leaving Dr. Walden's care. Tim's questions gave Brian the chance to finally tell his story to the jury. Tim asked Brian, what was your focus from 2008 to 2012? My focus was my medication. It, uh, that was it for me. It ran my life. It told me when to eat, when to sleep. It was all that mattered. Everything revolved around taking my pills. It's a terrible thing to have absolutely no control. No control over it. It ran me. It was more important than my wife, than my daughter. It was more important than me. Brian explained how he slowly lost control. It was difficult for me to just take what was prescribed to me. I would take the prescribed amount, and it would start wearing off, so I'd take a little more. Sometimes I would forget how much I had taken. And so you just say, okay, well, I'll have a couple more. I got to the point that I would continually take the medicine. I would have no control over it. We tried locking it up in a lockbox. I figured out how to open the box. My wife would hide the medicine from me. I'd go through the house, sometimes neatly so she wouldn't know if I had found it. And sometimes I'd wait a day or two and say, you know, I found this. You need to find another spot for it. It wasn't fair to my wife. 
Now, Tim pivoted to responsibility. He asked, are you disputing that you would ask your doctor for more pills? No. Are you disputing that you would sometimes ask your doctor for higher doses? Not at all. Are you disputing that you wanted treatment for your back pain to keep working? That's why I was taking the medicine, yes. Did you trust your doctor as to what your treatment should be? Yes, I did. Tim pivoted again to let Brian explain how he had become a victim and begged for help. I went in to talk to Dr. Walden, and I told him that I wanted to get off the medication and that it was running my life. I don't know how much clearer I could have been. I was in tears. I was a grown man crying to my doctor that I trusted to come off my medication. Then Tim asked, Brian, were you asking for help? Absolutely. And what did your doctor do? Nothing. Tim called up medical records showing after this plea for help, Dr. Walden prescribed the same meds in the same doses and noted in his records that Brian shows no issues with compliance or adverse effects. In other words, no problem. Then the jury watched an emotional close about seeing their young daughter, Emily. I think one of the saddest things, the saddest story I remember from the case, and Brian broke down crying on the stand when he did it, is a story of what happened one of those times in rehab. It was their sixth wedding anniversary. In um, rehab. She spent, went to visit him. Spent in a rehab center. Michelle brought their daughter to see their dad. He remembers commenting to Michelle on how well Emily was running and speaking all of a sudden. And Michelle turns to him, looks at him, and says, Brian, she's been doing that for over a year. He didn't know. He didn't know his daughter could run and talk, and he broke down and he wept. And he was filled with regret and shame. Now it's the defense team's opportunity to cross-examine Brian. They hammered on the responsibility issue, making Brian confirm that he had asked for the meds, that they allowed him to continue working, and that Brian didn't tell Dr. Walden that he was having any problems. Defense counsel asked, if you were so worried about taking too many meds, why didn't you change doctors? Other doctors would not take over my regimen of medicine to get off it because I was on too much. The defense presents medical records showing Dr. Walden did try to taper Brian's meds, therefore acting responsibly. But Brian went into rehab and never came back. So in essence, he denied Dr. Walden the opportunity to help him get off the opioids. Brian tried to defend his actions. But I was unable to taper down off the medication and had told him so. I told him I was unable to taper that I had no control, and that I wanted to be put in rehab. In the hours of cross-examination, the defense scored some key points. They showed that Brian had good reviews at work while on the medication with Dr. Walden. And after Brian left Dr. Walden and went into rehab in 2012, he had to apply for disability because he couldn't work. Brian read from his own disability request form. I cannot work because of my incessant pain. I find it extraordinarily painful to walk. I can't lift, I cannot bend, it hurts to sit, which makes driving very hard. Defense asked, you never had these complaints when Dr. Walden treated you, did you? No. Did you or your wife ever tell Dr. Walden about falling asleep while driving or smoking cigarettes on the front porch? No. 
and a potentially damning admission. Did you ever withhold information from Dr. Walden about these issues of possible dependency? Yes. The defense pushed harder on this and introduced intake records from St. Mary's Hospital from the day Michelle took Brian there after he allegedly put the loaded gun in his mouth. A question on the intake form asks, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself or suicide? Brian had checked no. The defense also read Brian's medical evaluation, which states, patient is calm, cooperative, and interacts appropriately, verbalizes no suicidal ideation. Based on clinical screening, this patient is not at immediate risk for suicide. So medical professionals who evaluated Brian did not report the behavior Brian and his wife were claiming. Then the defense brought in evidence that Brian had admitted he was responsible for his addiction. They asked Brian to read from his personal journal from rehab. I'm an addict. It's my fault. After a few more questions, Brian Kuhn, the plaintiff's last witness, left the stand with a sigh of relief. The lawsuit he started three years ago to try to impact the overprescription of opioids was now out of his hands. The defense had made some powerful points to discredit Brian and Michelle, but they had a larger strategy in mind. Use the law to remove damaging testimony from the jury's consideration. As Brian left the stand, the defense team approached the bench. They argued to Judge Noble that Dr. Jennison's entire testimony against Dr. Walden should be thrown out because his opinions were inappropriate and insufficient because an expert opinion must be based on an established standard of care rather than a personal standard that does not apply to Missouri practitioners. Now we saw the seeds of what they were planting when they asked Dr. Jennison over and over about written guidelines on opioid prescribing. They also claimed Dr. Jennison did not prove that Dr. Walden's treatment was willful, wanton, or malicious, specific words that must be used to prove a medical negligence claim in Missouri and that Dr. Jennison failed to prove that the hospital system had any fault. Therefore, they should not be held liable at all. The final claim was to get punitive damages, potentially the biggest monetary award the jury could give, off the table. The defense claimed that Missouri punitive damages law states that a plaintiff must prove intentional wrongdoing to a clear and convincing standard. Reckless, as Dr. Jennison called Dr. Walden's conduct, was not good enough. Since overdose or death did not occur, and Brian kept his job, there was no damage. So how could the hospital system or Dr. Walden be asked to pay anything at all? The decision on these arguments was solely up to Judge Noble. If there was no punitive damages, the case would become only about Brian and Michelle making it nearly impossible to get a judgment that could impact the prescribing practices that were adding to the opioid epidemic. A ruling for the defense on any one of these claims could destroy Brian's entire case. Tim and Johnny anticipated and prepared for these potential attacks. 
Tim pointed out to the judge that Dr. Jennison did use an objective standard of care of what is ordinarily done under the same or similar circumstances for medical malpractice, not simply his personal standard. Tim cited cases where the phrase conscious disregard has been added to the list of willful, wanton, or malicious conduct, and that reckless, the word Dr. Jennison used, had been deemed the same as wanton in other trials. Judge Noble took these oral motions under advisement, which means these decisions were too big to make quickly in front of the jury, so he went to his private chambers to consider them. After several minutes, Judge Noble returned and handed down his ruling. The court finds that a reasonable jury could determine that the evidence presented regarding the defendant's acts or omissions rise to the level of intentional wrongdoings or omissions, and to do so, they can do it by clear and convincing standard. So, your motion will be denied. After a silent sigh of relief, Tim Cronin said three important words. The plaintiff rests. But the fight was far from over. It was the defense team's turn to tell their side of the story. Friday, June 24, 2016. The defense opened their case by reading depositions from Brian's family members and his boss, hoping to show the jury that Brian continued to work and support his family while under Dr. Walden's care, and that his family members didn't want to be around him, implying that he was not trustworthy. Tim did his best to refute the claims in cross-examination and show just how much Brian had been impacted by the drugs. But the fireworks really started after lunch, when the defense called their addictionologist, Dr. Gunderson, to the stand. After establishing Dr. Gunderson's lengthy credentials, the defense counsel asked Dr. Gunderson to state his opinion that Dr. Walden had provided proper and appropriate care that met the definition of standard of care, the foundation of the case. Over the course of his treatment, certainly, the opioids escalated to large amounts, but in that time, he, he was appropriate in his use and referral to specialists. The defense then tried to show that Brian wasn't addicted at all, that he was tolerant. Your body adapts to getting the opioids, both through tolerance and physical dependence. It, it's a physiological reaction, not necessarily an addiction. This is fully expected. He was dosing as prescribed. Dr. Gunderson said he saw few reports of major side effects or compulsive overuse in Brian's medical records. Brian only took what he was prescribed, so he wasn't exhibiting addictive behavior. Dr. Gunderson stated that one of the biggest challenges primary care physicians like Dr. Walden face is trying to manage chronic pain with opioids while keeping a careful watch for opioid disorders. Defense was pleased when he said, Basically, Brian was taking more because he got tolerant and because he had more pain, because his disease was progressing in his back and he had a really arduous job. Now, there, there is no specified ceiling for pain management in prescribing for pain. We're talking about amounts. In any addiction criteria for any substance, amount never comes into it. Was his claim of 
The meds are running my life? A call for help due to addiction? Dr. Gunderson said no. Well, many people who are on medication daily and need to take them will describe it as running their life. They need the meds. It's not pleasant to have to take medication all the time. The defense closed their examination of Dr. Gunderson, satisfied they had refuted all Brian's claims. Tim Cronin stepped up for the cross-examination, armed with the insights he and Johnny had uncovered about Dr. Gunderson. Tim pointed out that Dr. Gunderson's opinions were all based on Dr. Walden's records, which did not reflect what Brian and Michelle had said about asking for help. Dr. Gunderson agreed. Dr. Gunderson also agreed that Bryant developed an opioid use disorder, which is akin to addiction. Tim then asked a loaded question about responsibility. Bryant wouldn't have an opioid disorder if Dr. Walden hadn't prescribed opioids, right? Uh, True. Yes. Then Tim tried to undermine Dr. Gunderson's credibility by asking about that letter to the FDA, the one the defense had introduced, which cited opioid guidelines from 2007, and the defense started to unravel. Here's some of the things that were written in the letter that he signed. He wrote that misperceptions by clinicians lead to overprescribing and high-dose prescribing of opioids. He wrote that. He, with the letter, and as part of the organization, it proposed exactly what we were saying the entire case. He wanted the FDA to put on their label a limit of 90 to 100 milligrams a day of morphine and never go for more than 90 days except for cancer patients, right? He's proposing these limitations. The maximum doses and, and time limitations that we've been saying from day one. Right, and the defense attorneys are standing up saying, no, everything's fine, there's no limits, there's no textbook that says you can't go past this. And here's this letter, and he's saying, well, you should do it what Dr. Jennison says. Tim wanted to make Dr. Gunderson's repudiation of his own testimony crystal clear. So we had an exhibit, it was a bar graph we'd made, that showed how these doses escalated. It literally like went off the bar graph by the by the last year. And then with our expert on the stand, we drew a red line at 100 morphine equivalent milligrams across the bar graph to show how in 2009, 10, 11, 12, it, it exceeded that after I established that this guy had signed a letter to the federal government establishing the same maximum guidelines. With him on the stand, I pulled that bar graph back out and I took a thicker red marker and I said, so we can put this line right where our experts said, and that's accurate, and that's what you told the government. And I think it was it was an effective visual yeah, uh, I mean, for the juror. Just it really explicitly showed that, man, this guy was saying things outside of litigation that he, he wasn't saying in that courtroom. I mean, it was really unbelievable. This letter was crazy. I remember I found it, like, Googling his name in my garage, uh, which just shows you if you have a couple seconds, instead of looking up some sports stats, look up who you're deposing next week. You might find some gold. Or your own expert before you produce him for a depot to see if he wrote a letter to the government saying the other side is right. This letter explicitly said that long-term use of opiates has not been proven safe and effective for chronic non-cancer pain. That's in 2012 after Mr. Kuhn's been on him for four years. Right. I mean, when the jury saw that letter at trial, they audibly gasped and started giving dirty looks to the defense table. There was a reporter from the Post that was at this trial 
um, because again, this is this is when the opioid epidemic started first started exploding, and he'd been writing about it. And he came and observed most of the trial. When he saw that letter, and we went through it, he stood up and threw his hands in the air, and he walked out. He couldn't believe it. I talked to him afterwards, and he said, "What better evidence can you get from their expert to support your case than something they wrote to the government four years ago?" This was a major point in Brian's favor. Following their strategy, Tim moved on to reinforce the relevance of the case to the national opioid epidemic. He asked this addiction expert, are physicians who are overprescribing opioids contributing to the opioid epidemic? Yes. And Tim continued, the risk for opioids, such as dependence, breathing problems, addiction, overdose, and death, were known before 2008. So Dr. Walden had to be aware of these risks, correct? Dr. Gunderson had to agree. At the end of testimony on Friday afternoon, Tim and Johnny were feeling good. They believed they had diffused major elements of Dr. Gunderson's testimony. The trial would resume Monday morning when the second defense expert, Dr. Guarino, and finally, Dr. Walden took the stand. But this weekend was not a time to relax. In fact, it was during this final weekend that Brian's legal team had a eureka moment while reviewing those discovery records we talked about. They realized something was missing, something so big, it would cause Brian's team to ask for the defendant's legal pleadings in the case to be struck. That means throw their case out. You'll hear about that. Testimony from Dr. Walden and Dr. Guarino and the impact of the jury's decision in the final episode of Results Don't Lie. Results Don't Lie is a true story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.